0: 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning this morning in verse 11, Paul writes, I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me. For I ought to have been commended by you, for in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance In signs and wonders and mighty deeds? For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Oh, forgive me this wrong. Now for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you. For I do not seek yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk? in the same steps? Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. For I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults, lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. In 2 Corinthians chapters 10-13, through Paul speaks a lot about boasting. The false teachers in Corinth, they had been boasting of their spiritual authority and prowess, even to the point of labeling themselves super apostles. In response, Paul too felt that he needed to boast. In these chapters, he does what he doesn't like to do, talk about himself. And yet because of the libel and the slander hurled at him by his critics in Corinth, Paul felt the need to defend his faith and his ministry, and so he boasted. I wonder how all this boasting for the Corinthians, both Paul's boasting and the boasting of the false teachers, would have played out in modern times. For today, we have invented the ultimate form of boasting, the selfie. Even its name smacks of boasting. It's all about self. It starts by tilting your phone at a little over a 45 degree angle there, shifting to take advantage of the appropriate light, angling your body where you're just in the right place where you can catch your background in the snapshot, managing the right facial expressions, and then snap. Afterwards, you apply a flattering filter, then you click, and it gets posted. To Facebook, to Twitter, to Instagram, where hopefully you begin to receive an avalanche of likes and little hearts (laughs) and thumbs ups. You have alerted the world of your presence. Apparently, the selfie has been around quite a while, but it really went viral in 2004 when the iPhone 4 introduced the front facing camera. What a breakthrough! Did you know that today, 91% of United States teenagers post photos of themselves online? 91%? There are 90 million posts on Instagram with the hashtag, me. Hey, we've even invented the selfie stick for picture takers with short arms, apparently. Now you can even post at a better angle. As a matter of fact, our former president used to take selfies there in the White House. In fact, the selfie that has gone out of this world is of the Japanese astronaut who on a spacewalk took a selfie. It's one of the most famous selfies of all time. The selfie has gone galactic. A selfie is modernized, visualized, digitized, boasting. That's what it is. And what if Paul and the Corinthians had possessed this technology and could have done their boasting with selfies? What would their Instagram have looked like? The false teachers in Corinth, they would have snapped selfies of themselves riding in their limos and wearing their little tight-fitting designer jeans and preaching on stage to packed auditoriums and laying hands on the sick and collecting enormous offerings And posing with other celebrity pastors. Click, 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 click. Whereas Paul's selfies, oh, they would have been different. Quite different. Can you imagine Paul's Instagram? There's Paul in the middle of the ocean. With broken timbers from the shipwreck and sharks circling him. Hashtag spreading the gospel. There he is holding his camera out of a pile of stones. After he's been brutally pelted, hashtag rocking for Jesus. Here Paul snaps a selfie in chains behind bars, hashtag prison again. And Paul, here he's in a riot caused by his own preaching, hashtag still worth it. And of course, Pastor Paul relaxing on a Monday, hashtag ministry is not for sissies. You get the idea. Paul's selfies would have been very different from the selfies taken by the false teachers. See, here are two types of boasting. The Corinthian super apostles, they boasted in what the world would deem marks of success. Whereas Paul boasted in his sufferings. What appeared to be weakness and loss and defeat. The false teachers pointed to self-sanctioned awards as proof of their apostleship, whereas Paul boasted in his scars. His scars were the proof of his calling as a minister for Jesus. Paul had discovered the liberating truth that as a Christian, we are strong when we are weak. For it is in our weakness that God's strength works on our behalf, and we learn that His grace is sufficient for everything that we need. With this in mind, let's pick up Paul's very emotional defense here in chapter 12, verse 11. He writes to the Corinthians, I have become a fool in boasting, but you have compelled me. I mean, it went against Paul's grain to spend any time at all posting selfies, talking about himself and his exploits. Boasting seems so foolish to Paul. Anything... That we do for Jesus pales in comparison to what Jesus has done for us. But Paul was forced to boast. He blames it here on the Corinthians. He says, you have compelled me. You see, their attacks on the messenger were threatening to taint the glory of the message. If Paul's calling was being questioned, then the gospel would be held suspect. Paul boasted not to advance himself, but to defend the gospel of grace and to proclaim its authenticity. He continues, for I ought to have been commended by you, for in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Rather than having to prove himself to the Corinthians, this church should have been appreciative of all that Paul had done for them. You remember, amidst much persecution and opposition, Paul planted this church in Corinth. He lived there for 18 months, sowing tents by day preaching the gospel by night. The Corinthians should have admired and emulated Paul's selfless service. But they were into selfies. And the false apostles took better selfies. They knew how to ham it up for the camera. They had the more spiritual looking pose. They took the prettier picture. They were more religiously photogenic. Paul was humble and a servant. In reality, the false teachers in Corinth had nothing on Paul. It's not that Paul saw himself as all that, but the false teachers were empty suits. They were all show. It should have been obvious. He sarcastically calls them what they arrogantly called themselves, most eminent apostles. In the original language, it's super apostles. Yet they had nothing on Paul. In a comparison of apostolic chops, Paul exceeded them in every way. He possessed the real bona fides. He mentions his qualifications in verse 12. He says, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. While Paul was in Corinth, rather than proclaim he was an apostle, he let his actions do the talking. Read Acts chapter 18 of Paul's time there in Corinth. He reasoned among them persuasively. He labored tirelessly. He spoke the words of God faithfully. God even spoke to him supernaturally in a night vision, in a dream. Apparently, he was there. While he was there, his ministry yielded signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Now, what exactly happened, we're not told. But based on his letters, I'm sure spiritual gifts played a part. Like healings, discerning of spirits, working of miracles, faith perhaps. You see, one of the marks of an apostle in the early church was the presence of miracles in the man's ministry. The apostles were the first generation guys who had walked with Jesus. And so when it came to leadership in the church, they were Jesus' direct successors. Don't be surprised that the bar was set higher for these men. That's why the first Christians saw supernatural displays as God's confirmation of an apostle. Miracles were divine evidence. And on that basis, no one could doubt Paul's credibility. His resume of miracles was far more exhaustive than the empty boasts of the false teachers in Corinth. Paul's credits put them to shame. And he continues in verse 13, for what is it in which you were inferior to, or in other words, my treatment for you was less than that of other churches except that I myself was not burdensome to you. Oh, forgive me this wrong. Paul's pen is now dripping with sarcasm. The only thing these super apostles did among the Corinthians that Paul didn't do was take their money. Paul is saying, forgive me for not ripping you off. In early Christianity, it was an apostolic privilege to live off the financial support of the local churches. Yet while in Corinth, Paul passed on this privilege. Rather than take a salary from the church, he made tents with a friend. He lived off his own blue-collar wages. In fact, he took financial support from other churches so he could minister freely to the Corinthians. He didn't want pleas for money to cast a cloud on his own motives. And yet rather than appreciate Paul's concerns, his critics actually spun it differently. They said that he didn't collect an offering because he wasn't worthy of their support. He had no right to take any kind of apostolic support since he wasn't a legitimate apostle. They put Paul down for the very reasons he should have been applauded. Unlike the false prophets who liked to profit, Paul had some integrity. He says in verse 14, Now for the third time I am ready to come to you. And I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours, but you. Paul planned a third visit to Corinth, and he wasn't after their money, only their hearts. I do not seek yours, but you. Realize there are two approaches to ministry. Some pastors feel the congregation exists for them. They would never say it. They would never admit it. But in a thousand subtle ways, this is what they communicate from day to day. The church is there to pay the pastor what he thinks he deserves, to fulfill the pastor's dreams of grandeur and greatness. The church becomes his empire, a testament to his ministerial greatness. It's his church. But there are pastors with a different approach. They live to serve the congregation. They exist for the people. It's not the people who exist for them. They're there to serve and give and love and teach and help. They realize that the church belongs to Jesus. It's His bride. They're just groomsmen. They would never take advantage of the bride of Christ. A faithful pastor is content to live in the background and to remain a humble groomsman. And Paul had this kind of groomsman-like attitude. He writes, For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And here is where all four of my kids are biblical godly kids. (laughs) This is how they think, all right. Hey, let's invite mom and dad for dinner tonight. Maybe dad will pick up the check. And I understand, I've done it to my dad. The father is the one who scrapes and saves and sacrifices for his kids, not vice versa. Parents lay up and pay up for their kids. The flip side is that my children will one day do the same for their own kids. Which reminds me of the four kids who decided to chip in and buy dad a nice Father's Day present. One of them suggested, hey, let's get dad something we all can get something out of. They all agreed it was a great idea. And so they pitched in and bought him a new wallet. (laughs) Here's the best definition I've ever heard of a father. He's a man who now carries pictures where he once carried his money. Paul is stating, it's parents who support their kids, not the kids who support their parents. And what's true of a parent is the reality for a pastor, a good one. A true pastor will have the heart of a father toward his congregation. He sees his ministry as a means to serve the people he loves, not a way for them to serve him. I love verse 14. I've been a pastor now for 36 years, and I've been a parent for 33 years. And at times I've marveled at how much I've learned about parenting from pastoring. And equally so, I've been amazed at how much I've learned about pastoring from parenting, there's so many similarities. Both are selfless, costly, other-centered occupations. The only way to be a good dad is to take me out of the equation. And the only way to be a good pastor is to do the same. Of course, you've seen other parents. These are the ones who put the bumper stickers on their luxury cars that read, We're spending our children's inheritance. You've seen these. Or the message plastered on the back of the Winnebago. Sorry kids, it's all spent. (laughs) That's a parent who's decided to defy convention. And this was certainly the motto of the false teachers in Corinth. It should have been engraved on their Bibles. They were spending the family of God's inheritance. Their exorbitant salaries These lavish expense accounts of the false teachers were crippling the church's progress. And Paul would have nothing of it. He understood the only reason a man should ever be involved in Christian ministry is to see other believers mature in their faith. The church is no place for spiritual entrepreneurs whose goal is to build a name for themselves or to make a buck off God. A pastor should be like a good dad. And this is why Paul concludes... And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Pastor Paul was willing to drain his life away on these Corinthians. He would gladly spend and be spent to better their souls. Paul loved the Corinthians so much he would exhaust his resources. He would burn his last ounce of energy. He would even sacrifice his health and his future to see the souls of these Corinthians flower and flourish. Again, this is the heart of a true pastor. And when you find a person like this, support him, follow him by all means. Did you know that pastors are like garden hoses? Some are sprayers and some are soakers. A hose with a sprayer directs the water to a specific spot, press the handle and it increases or decreases the strength of the flow. Tighten the sprayer and you can adjust the flow wider or narrower. But you're in control. If you've got one of those sprayers, you can manipulate it. You can adjust the focus and the volume and the radius. Whereas a soaker is a hose with perforations. It has holes over the length of the hose. Water just flows. It just oozes. You snake it through the garden and water just oozes from it indiscriminately. It's no longer the one holding the hose that's in control. A soaker has no choice but just to leak. And I think Paul was a soaker, not a sprayer. He wasn't a career-oriented pastor where his efforts were limited to a time and a place. It wasn't a job to Paul where he paced himself a little here, a little there, so it might best benefit him in the long run. No, Paul's goal was to throw himself into whatever it was that God had him doing at the time. Spend and be spent, he said. Lord, just put me in the garden and let me soak. Paul's attitude was to give and give and give some more. Lord, let me serve. Let me help wherever I'm at, however I can. Let me bleed out for Jesus' sake. And here's my question for you this morning. Are you a sprayer or are you a soaker? Hey, will you serve the Lord, but only in the narrow ways that you can control? Are there limits to how far you'll go and to what you'll do for Jesus? Are you focused on just reaching certain types of people, your type of people? You a sprayer? Or are you willing to just be uncoiled in the place that God puts you and just soak? Just seep out the love of Jesus to anyone and everyone nearby. Are you willing to love indiscriminately as God sees fit? You a soaker? I want to be a soaker for Jesus' sake. I hope that you do too. Let's spin, gladly spin, and be spent for Jesus. And again, that wasn't the Corinthians' attitude, for Paul groans, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. How sad. Rather than soakers, the Corinthians were sponges. Rather than seep out love, they soaked up Paul's love and refused to, partic- to reciprocate. They were takers rather than givers. These were folks who were beneficiaries of Paul's ministry in a thousand ways, but they had failed to acknowledge his contributions. They had taken Paul's ministry for granted. You know, the Corinthians were the ungrateful children of a generous and sacrificial parent. They were so blessed to have Paul as their pastor, their spiritual father, but they failed to even respect him, let alone be thankful to him and for him. And if you're a parent... I would imagine you probably know how he felt. It's a kid's tendency, isn't it, to take their parents for granted. And sadly, it's the tendency in some churches to have the same attitude toward their spiritual leaders. This was the Corinthians. Some of you might know that October has been designated as Pastor Appreciation Month. It's a rather recent invention. In fact, I used to scoff at the idea. Let's not put pastors on a pedestal. But then I logged a few years as a pastor. And I'll tell you, today I'm appreciative of every bit of encouragement and appreciation I can get. I've gotten grateful letters that I now carry around with me in my Bible. I stick them in my Bible. I carry them in my briefcase just in case I need a quick pick-me-up sometime. Pastor is a tough job. Helps to know there's some people praying for you and appreciate what you're trying to do. And then Paul writes in verse 16, But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Again, Paul is being sarcastic. His critics have accused Paul of being crafty or devious, but his critics were the ones who had been cunning. See, they were saying things like, oh yeah, Paul comes across so sincere. He says he doesn't want to take anything from you, but he's really just setting you up. He's trying to get your confidence so he can then take advantage of you later. Paul asks, did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? It was a rhetorical question. The answer was obviously no. Paul and everyone who had ever represented him had been above board. Nothing in how Paul had handled himself in the past justified that he would act unscrupulously in the future. He writes, I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Not once did Paul or any of his pals manipulate or intimidate anyone. They all had the same loving attitude toward the Corinthians. He says, again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. Their only motive was to edify, that is to build up the Corinthian church. Paul goes on in verse 20. For I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. See, Paul is hoping the Corinthians are living holy lives. The Corinthians are hoping that Paul will be a tolerant guest. (laughs) But they're just both fishing for what they were wishing. A serious conflict is on the horizon here. Hey, it's about to get ugly. If the Corinthians are living in sin, like Paul has heard, he's going to have to bust some chops. Such behavior is a poor witness. Rather than a happy visit, he's going to be forced to issue a stern rebuke. He's going to have to exercise some discipline here. A showdown was brewing in Corinth. And I need to tell you, and I hope it doesn't burst your bubble, but sometimes church life gets ugly. It just does. Christians don't always handle difficult situations like Christians. Don't forget, Christians are redeemed people, saved people, forgiven people, even changed people. But none of them I've met are perfect people. God never promises perfection in this life. Not in these fleshly bodies. Not in this wicked world. Today we're all a work in progress. That means at times we're going to struggle with hurt feelings. And we're going to express ourselves awkwardly. And we're going to fail to be as sensitive as we should be. On occasion, all humans, even Christians, open their lips and shoot from the hip. They do. Go back to the illustration of parents and children. Do parents always keep their cool? Do kids make statements they later regret? Do family members have to eat humble pie and apologize? Of course they do. Sometimes, in the name of love, families just have to live with a little unresolved tension. Family life can get ugly and messy, even for families that love each other. Why would church life be any different? I've been among spiritual giants, godly men, and it still got ugly. Tempers flared, harsh words were said. Sometimes the circumstances are so complex and the issues are so murky that a little ugliness is inevitable. I hate it when it happens. I do all I can to prevent it. I pray I'm not the cause of it. But at times, Christians get mad and confused and upset and ugly toward one another. You'd think we'd always mind our P's and Q's, but on occasion, the wheels come off, and only time and patience and grace can repair the damage. I'm just saying, when it happens, don't you be shocked. And whatever you do, don't question the gospel's power. Just take a deep breath, recall our humanity and God's mercy, and look forward to heaven. And Paul was afraid that his visit to Corinth was headed for this kind of ugliness, especially if the Christians continued in the following. Lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults, contentions, contentions in the church, quarrels, Donny Brooks, rhubarbs in the church, jealousies? Why is he an elder and not me? Why wasn't I asked to do that? How come she gets to sing almost every Sunday? Oh my. Jealousies can even come to church. Outbursts of wrath. That's what Paul calls them when they occur among spiritual leaders. When it's two toddlers, we call it a temper tantrum. But it's the same thing. (laughs) Selfish ambitions among Christians? God forbid. But the problem is he doesn't just forbid. It's a choice we make. God knows we all have selfish ambitions and we have to be willing to lay aside our agenda for the greater good, for the sake of unity, for the glory of God. Backbitings? You mean that's not just a problem in the nursery? No, this is why Christians wear shirts and sometimes jackets. To cover the teeth marks. When you're shocked to hear the derogatory thing someone said about you, please remember what you've said about me. I'm the pastor. I know I'm a target. Don't tell me you've never criticized one of my sermons or some decision I've made or some comment or maybe one of my jokes. Don't tell me that. I got your teeth marks. Let's compare dental records. Back here. I got the marks on my back to prove it. Yet, I still come to church. I still love you. I haven't given up. And neither should you. Let's just knock off all the backbiting. And whisperings. Are the rumors spreading? Why is it some of our prayer requests sound like juicy gossip? Avoid the hush conversations. The whisperings. If you can't say what you think loudly... Don't say it. Paul also fears conceits among the Corinthians. The word means inflating or swelling. Paul is afraid the Corinthians will get the big head. They'll get swollen with pride. They'll think more of themselves than they should. And I fear this for myself. It occurs so easily. You know, you can become proud of your humility. (laughs) It's kind of funny. I'll never forget the name of the Christian musicians who had the tongue-in-cheek name, the Fabulous Humble Brothers. (laughs) Pretty cool. Humility is the most elusive virtue. It's when you think you've obtained it, it's certain that you haven't. And lastly, Paul was afraid of tumults, or literally chaos. The Corinthians had already shown this tendency. From 1 Corinthians, we learned that this church was out of control. There were divisions. They were tolerating immorality. They had taken their disputes to the pagan courts. They had misunderstood marriage. They had misinterpreted Christian liberty. They had violated gender roles. They had abused spiritual gifts. And that was all in just one Sunday. That's what Paul's letter to the Corinthians was all about, his first letter. He wrote to set in order a tumultuous church. And remember the pinnacle of his instructions? When we think of 1 Corinthians and its 16 chapters, which one stands out to you? To most people, it's chapter 13. Without love, you ain't nothing. Understand, love is the cure-all for all that Paul fears here. He was worried about contentions, but love is kind. Jealousies, but love does not envy. Outbursts of wrath, but love does not behave rudely. Selfish ambitions, but love does not seek its own. Backbitings, but love is not provoked. Whisperings, but love thinks no evil. Conceits, but love is not puffed up. Tumults, but love suffers long. Corinth, like every church, had a whole litany of problems. But the only one that would become their death nail was a lack of love. I'm sure Paul was praying for the Corinthians that their love for one another would be restored. And that's what I'm praying for our church, that we'll love one another. Paul closes with his greatest fear. He writes, Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you. If Paul comes to Corinth, to this church that he planted, that he led to Christ, that he discipled for almost two years, that he still practically pastored, if he comes to this church and he finds them selfish and unloving and immoral, he'll be embarrassed. He'll be humbled among them. I doubt if it's ever been a motivation for you, but perhaps you should consider this. When the other pastors in churches travel in, for our various conferences, do you care about the church that they find? Do you want your pastors embarrassed by a chaotic, selfish, carnal church? Do you want your pastors to be humbled before their peers? What if someone comes into our church and says, why is Pastor Sandy hosting a conference for church leaders when his own people don't do anything? See, that's exactly what Paul feared folks would say about him after they had visited the Corinthians. He hoped he wasn't humbled by them. And then he writes, And I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. He's talking about the brothers and the sisters in Corinth Who are still caught up in sexual sin. Fornication is sex before marriage. Uncleanness and lewdness are other kinds of illicit sex. And Paul says he'll mourn for them. Not because they fell into sin. All Christians are capable of backsliding, but because they refused to repent. They didn't want to change. They liked their sin. They were happy in their sin. And this is the issue for us. Not the fact that we sin. We're all going to sin from time to time. It happens. We're fallen people. But are we willing to confess it when it does and ask God to change us? The Greek word Paul uses that translates mourn describes mourning for the dead. And this is how Paul sees the person who's gotten comfortable in their sin who's gotten adjusted and likes their sin. He sees them as dead to God. They're the walking dead. Paul doesn't want his next visit to Corinth to be awake for a dead church. He wants to find fellowship, not a funeral. He wants their reunion to be a celebration. Now let me sum up this morning's text with a few overarching thoughts. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians is unique It's not a dissertation in theology and doctrine. It's not even practical lessons on Christian living. In this letter, Paul pours out his heart. Don't you feel it? Don't you sense it as we read this? He's pouring himself out, he's sharing his heart. He's getting personal with the Corinthians in a way he does nowhere else. And here is the big takeaway here's what this means. He cared. He cared. Unlike the false teachers in Corinth, Paul took Christian ministry seriously. He had a parent's heart for the people in this church. He hurt when they hurt. He rejoiced when they rejoiced. It really mattered to Paul. They really mattered to Paul. And likewise, our church should matter to us. We should matter to each other. Pastor Kent Hughes writes in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, love the church, serve her, spend and be spent, seek souls, and your heart will know an index of fears unknown to the uncommitted heart. But you will also know joys that are unknown to the self-serving. Indeed. If you want a rich, deep, meaningful life. You've got to care enough to hurt. You've got to risk enough to rejoice. You've got to even endure the ugliness. You've got to stop taking selfies and thinking only of yourself. You've got to think about others, especially this church, your church. Billy Graham once said, The smallest person I ever saw was a man wrapped wholly in himself. Let's stop our boasts and let's start boasting in what matters to God.